Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, The Old Servant. The love story of Isaac and Rebecca is a legendary tale in the Bible, and it's been cherished for centuries by Christians. However, there is a nameless character in the story that is often overlooked, but has a profoundly significant purpose, and whose presence in the story points to the nature of the third person of the Trinity. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. The Old Servant. Strange title. It's a good one, though. I had another title that I was working with, and it was The Unknown Soldier. Oh, it was a hard decision. But, because the unknown soldier just has a little more bravado to it than the old servant. The old servant, if you were going to pit the old servant against the unknown soldier, uh, which one do you think is going to win? Well, the unknown soldier is like built for battle. However, wait till you take a peek at the old servant. Okay, the old servant is something quite special. And so even though it doesn't seem to have as much strength and grandeur as the unknown soldier would... That's part of why he's named this. You see, though the old servant is absolutely extraordinary, he has no interest in you making him the focus. He's a servant. And his desire is not to draw your attention towards himself, but to effectively work in your life in such a way where you see the one he's serving. And so I don't know that I should give much more away. But let's begin to build a message called the old servant. I like this message, by the way. The want ad for the ultimate Jeeves. So say that you're the proprietor, the owner of an estate, and you're going to be leaving town. You need a Jeeves. See, I don't have a lot of money, so I can't say that I understand what it's like to have a Jeeves. Wouldn't it be fun to have, uh, hey, Jeeves, could you take me to King Supers? Uh, and then you get into your long limousine, and Jeeves takes you. Yes, sir. Uh, and I've never lived that way. However, this is the one ad for the ultimate Jeeves. Not just any sort of servant, but this is the ultimate servant. So this is what it could look like. Looking for an old servant to run the Barclay estate in the master's absence. The sort of servant that is wise, gray-headed, knows everything, and will stick strictly to the Barclay book of proper manners and all household operations in managing and governing the property. Must have at least 70 years' experience. Must be absolutely trustworthy, willing to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, without ever taking a vacation, without a single complaint. Must never vie for control or try to lure the other household servants to an agenda outside the owner's clear prerogative. Must be willing to die to preserve the owner's reputation and the safety of the other members of the household. Must accept that the unlimited access to all the benefits of the Barclay estate and a deep familial bond with the Barclay family is his sole wage. Must be willing to forsake his own name and be known exclusively as Barclay's steward from the first day and ever onward. Well, who wants that job? Well, that's ridiculous. And that's the way most of us would think. When we see that want ad, we're like, well, I'm not going to sign up for that. That's because you don't think like a servant. You don't want to be someone else's slave. You want to have slaves yourself. You see, you're human. You're wired backwards. When you come out of the womb of your mother, something's out of whack with you. And as a result, you have a tendency to want to be the owner of the estate 
as opposed to be the servant of an estate. And as a result, you have a problem. It's known as sin. Because you were never built. This is a house. Did you know that God actually calls a human body a house? This house was not meant to be your estate. It was meant to be God's estate. And you were meant to be his servant within this very body. And so as a result, when we hear this what ad, we snicker, we sneer, we laugh out loud, and we say, who would do that? The greatest amongst us would be attracted to such a want ad. Oh, if I could just be at such a level, the ultimate Jeeves. The Holy Spirit. I know this is a shocker for some of you. You're like, did I just enter into a charismatic Pentecostal environment here? At my church, we don't even mention those words, the Holy Spirit. Uh, I'm a strict believer that the Bible is safe territory. And whatever is in the Bible is God's word. And so it's not something that we need to be bashful over. If God uses the term Holy Spirit, and technically in the King James, the Holy Ghost, how do you feel about that one? This is not something to fear. You know what the Holy Spirit is God? The Holy Spirit is not something to get all weird about. I recognize that people have done things with the Holy Spirit that have made many of us go, eesh. However, the Holy Spirit is God Almighty. You want to say something negative about God Almighty? I didn't think so. So when we say the Holy Spirit, we're actually talking about one of the three persons of the Trinity, of the Godhead. Don't diminish him. Don't make him sound like he's something that we want out. He's something that without him being in the church, the church cannot function. Without him being in your life, you have no hope in this world for triumph. None. Zero. Zippo. However, the Holy Spirit is one of the most maligned, twisted, and distorted concepts in the church today. And as a result, it's high time the church of Jesus Christ get him back. Get him cleaned off to get him to the way the word of God expresses him to be so we can see and understand and relate to him properly. Some of the greatest abuses in Christianity today have to do with the Holy Spirit. That should tip you off to something. The enemy is always going to distort the most significant things in Christianity. He's going to distort the Holy Spirit. He's going to distort the concept of grace. He's going to distort the concept of faith. You go down the list... And if I talk about any of those three, you could start to get uncomfortable. Because why? There's been massive distortion of them. Some people start talking about faith today, like, are you a health, wealth, and prosperity guy? Because uh, that's like the faith movement. Hey, faith is not for anyone out there. It's for God's kingdom. This is not something we shy away from. We need to understand how it works. In discipleship, you need to know the basics. And you need to know how the enemy is intending to distort the basics. You see, this is a basic. Sort of like me saying, hey, uh, I want to introduce you to God. God, this is Charlie. Charlie, this is God. All right, now we can start. You see, when we're dealing with the Holy Spirit, it's like, Charlie, this is God. God, this is Charlie. All right, you guys need to learn to get along here. You see, if we can't figure this out, we're up a creek. We must not shy away from the clear, revealed word of God Almighty. Don't worry. This is a safe message as far as what you may be thinking. But it's not safe when it comes to when you truly allow the Holy Spirit to have his way, you're going to end up... Remember, he's holy. 
holy. Technically, we could, should probably call him the holy, holy, holy spirit. Which means he's not like you. He's not like you. He's really not like you. So when he comes and enters in to you, and he's not like you, he's not like you, he's really not like you, what happens? You begin to realize that you're really not like God. And he begins to say, let's start working here. And he says, uh, let's start over here. You're like, what? You see, when the Holy Spirit moves in, he wants to make this like God. To think like God, to behave like God, to speak like God. And so the Spirit of God is very good at one key thing, revealing God. That's what he does. He reveals Jesus Christ. Catch this. And when you see Jesus Christ, you see the Father. So when the Spirit of God comes, he reveals Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus Christ reveal? The Father. The Holy Spirit reveals the Godhead. That's his job. Now, remember what I called this message, the old servant. So the Holy Spirit, the old servant that labors daily as Jehovah's steward. You know, it's an interesting thing. But the father, and I know it sounds funny to say that he has a name, but he does. Uh, you know that Jesus, it's funny to say that he has a name, but he does. The Holy Spirit is sort of, I don't want to say the nameless one, but he sort of is. He's the third party to the Trinity, but he's the one that says, don't focus on me. So he's known as the Holy Spirit. And I know that, that you would say, well, that's his name. Well, I, I recognize that, but that's like calling him the old servant. That's like calling him the holy helper. You see, what we're giving him as far as a name is ambiguity, but it's purposeful. And I want you to recognize that as we begin to go through. It's like Barclay's steward, and he's known as that throughout the rest of his days. We don't know actually what the man's name is. We just call him Jeeves. You see, he is the servant, and that's his role, and it's a very, very purposeful role. And don't feel bad about it for him. It's a purposeful role to reveal to you something very important. So the word spirit comes from, well, if you were to break it down, it comes from a key word, which is nil, and it's a verb. It means to blow, to breathe, to move as wind. So here's our word for spirit, as translated in, out of the Greek, and it's pneuma. It's the, a movement of air. This is actually what it means. So the holy movement of air, the breath of of the nostrils. So he's the holy breath of the nostrils. That's actually what it would mean. What a strange name for anyone. Yeah, I'm the holy breath of the nostrils. Well, whose nostrils? Whose air? It's God's. It comes flowing, gushing out of God. When you ask for the Spirit, who do you ask if you know your word? Jesus says, ask the Father. You see, how do you get to the Father? You've been cut off from the Father. Well, the secret of the gospel is that Jesus is the way to the Father. So when you come to Jesus, he clothes you in his righteousness. And then you are beckoned into the throne room of grace, which is where the Father is. And the Father has the breath of life. He has that very wind within him, the very wind that animates his being. He wants to share with you. So he's a movement of air, the breath of the nostrils. Listen to this one. The vital principle by which the body is animated. This is how the body works. If you don't have the spirit, you're dead. If you don't have that wind, that breath, that life, you're just a sack of bones. You don't have life in you. And so as a result, 
You see, you have a human life in you. You have a human spirit in you. But you've lost the divine life. You've been cut off from it. But what Jesus has made a way for at the cross is for that wind, that breath, to once again inhabit this body. And it is meant to animate the body. So the way that this hand now moves is the way that God would move a hand. So the way that these eyes now look is the way God would use eyes. The way this heart now beats is the way God would beat a heart. The way that this mind now thinks is the way God would use a mind to think. The way that these feet function is they go where God would go. The way that this appetite works is the way God's appetite would work. You see, we're called the body of Christ. So pneuma, that which is working, but no one sees. So wind, it's, it's doing its stuff out there. Air, oxygen, it's working. You don't see it, but without it, you die. Isn't that a fascinating statement? You take the oxygen out of this earth and we all die. And most of us aren't sitting around thinking about oxygen right now. You see, there are certain dimensions of how life works that we don't make as our fulcrum or as our focal point. And yet without them, we lose life. So the pneuma is that which is working, but no one sees. That servant that runs the house but stays hidden behind the scenes. It's an actual role in an estate. It's that head butler. The house is always clean. How does it stay so clean? You look around, but you don't see who actually cleaned it, because he cleans it in such a way as not to draw attention to himself. But then the master walks down the staircase, and you forget that the house is clean, and what you see is the master of the house. The butler's job is to make the master shine. That's his job. So the vital person by which the body is animated. You see, it's not just breath, some inanimate breath. It is God, the very person of God who functions as the breath or the life of God. And that's known as the Holy Spirit, the old servant. The father, the son, and the old servant. You see, we don't think about it that way. It sounds odd and strange, but that's actually the way it works. So the siege on the Holy Spirit, how he is known by many in the church today. Well... This is a delicate issue, which is why even bringing it up with a... I mean, it's a dangerous thing. A whole bunch of new basic students show up and Eric has a message on the Holy Spirit. Boy, that's a mistake. Why? It's because it's a divisive point in the body of Christ today. It's actually an issue of great consternation. And there's some of you that have grown up in churches that have gone off the rails with the Holy Spirit in one way or the other. For instance, some of you have been in churches that will never talk about the Holy Spirit, except for, you know, in those odd things, like saying a baptism was like in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then it's like, did he just say that? Yes, but I think it's appropriate in that situation. It's like a fear of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we don't want to be like them. Well, who's them? Uh, Many of us know who them is. It's the wackos! And the wackos are going around with the Holy Spirit. And all they ever talk about is the Holy Spirit. You know the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit is truly present, you know who you hear about? Jesus. So if there's a church that's only talking about the Holy Spirit, something's wrong there. 
Because the Holy Spirit is like, hey, guys, I'm here to talk, but I'm talking about Jesus. The Holy Spirit leads to Jesus. And so we have those that try and avoid the Holy Spirit, and then we have those that try and make the Holy Spirit the center. And both end up with flesh leading the way. What is supposed to lead the Christian life? Spirit. Flesh is our old carnal disposition. I can do this for God. I have resources. I have attributes. I have skills and talents. I can use those. Those don't please God, and you cannot mimic the behavior of God with your own power, in your own discipline, in your own wit and wisdom. You need something outside of you, and that's called spirit, pneuma. You need the breath of God. Well, how are you going to get the breath of God? Well, I'd like to introduce you to Jesus and the cross, because what Jesus has done is he's made an avenue unto the throne room of grace. He's made a way unto the Father, and when you get to the Father, guess what? He's like, uh, you wanted to ask me something? Like, well, I do, but I don't feel worthy. Well, you're clothed in Jesus Christ. You can ask. All right. Uh, I need that, that pneuma, that, that life that's in you that Jesus told me that if I came to you and asked in his name that you would give it to me so that I can live and have that life in me and so that I can be shaped to begin to behave as you do. I can think as you do. I can live as you live. And he smiles and he says, I'm so glad you asked. He delights to give the pneuma. He delights to give it. The question is, do we delight to receive it? You see, we want a spirit, but I'm not sure if we really want the Holy Spirit. The flesh spirit? Oh, I like the sound of that. Can I have a few more helpings of the flesh spirit? Uh, God doesn't dish out the flesh spirit. He dishes out the Holy Spirit. The one that is unlike this world, does not behave as this world, does not think as this world, does not reason as this world. But reasons, thinks, behaves, talks, acts, behaves like God Almighty. So the Holy Spirit is known as the strange and bizarre. He gets associated with some of these bizarre antics that are done under his name. Oh, the Holy Spirit is leading me to do this. And we could all say, that isn't the Holy Spirit that is leading you to cluck like a chicken. No, no, that is not the Holy Spirit that is asking you to bark like a dog. You see, the Holy Spirit dignifies us, raises us up to a higher position. When you are in disobedience to the word of God, what happens to the serpent? He goes down on his belly. He becomes an animal. He gets attached to the things of this earth. But when you are redeemed, you rise up on two feet and behave with nobility. You do not become an animal. You become like God. Big difference. So many of us are flopping around on the ground instead of rising up and living for Jesus Christ. Let's allow the Holy Spirit to behave in the church the way that God would behave in this church. So the strange and bizarre, and that's an understatement, I could unfortunately go on and on on that point probably be very interesting but i don't know that it'd be edifying the holy spirit is also the despised and the rejected oh you talk about the holy spirit oh well we're a little concerned about you now uh god talks about the holy spirit let me get this even more clear god is the holy spirit What's wrong with the Holy Spirit? You see, what's wrong with the Holy Spirit is how it's been taken hostage. 
But it isn't the Holy Spirit that is wrong. It's those that are traipsing around attempting to take him as their own and masquerading under the behavior of this world and the flesh and trying to attribute it to him. Get your grubby paws off the Holy Spirit. You see, we as the body of Christ have to labor to take the Holy Spirit away from that which is flesh in our understanding. We have to clean off these barnacles and see him as God. Do you know that the Holy Spirit is no different than Jesus? He behaves the exact same way. You have a problem with Jesus? Okay, well, the Holy Spirit is the one who revealed Jesus to you. Everything you know about Jesus, where'd you learn it from? The Holy Spirit. How about the Father? Well, if you know Jesus and you're falling in love with Jesus, guess what? The Father behaves the same way as Jesus. Well, guess who introduced you to him? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is just like the Son, who's just like the Father. They have the same breath. They have the same life. They have the same nature. There is no distinction between them when it comes to nature. They bear the similar nature of God Almighty. Three persons, same behavior. If the Son had no spot, no sin, no guile, the Spirit has no spot, no sin, no guile. The way Jesus behaves is the same way the Spirit behaves. And when you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. He's the despised and rejected. He's also the twisted and abused. Well, let's make sure that we understand the Spirit of God the way he's been revealed in the Scriptures. The nature of the Holy Spirit's operation. So I'm going to go through a quick list of the way that he works. He works silently. Isn't that a funny statement? Most of us, when we do our good deeds, what do we like to do? Jingle money in the offering plate? You know, make it dance a little on the plate, and everyone around goes, wow. Of course, if it's change, it's probably not that impressive. (laughs) But that's the way the Pharisees would do it. The Pharisees want to be seen when they do their work. How about the Holy Spirit? You see, the Holy Spirit wants something to be seen, but not him. Isn't that a fascinating statement, to think that God Almighty works in this way? He is interested in showing something else to us other than himself. So he works silently. To remain hidden. So he works silently and he remains hidden. And it's a purposeful thing. As we go through this, you'll find this extremely fascinating. To take the lowest seat at the table of the Godhead. No, let me take that position. And God already talks about how he deems that behavior. God makes it very clear, that is my behavior. That is the behavior of my children. Well, where are his children learning it from? They're learning it from the Holy Spirit. Take the lowest position at every table. And as a result, to be oft overlooked and oft underappreciated. Is there a vulnerability in the church because of this? Yeah. There are churches that forget about the Holy Spirit and forget to train and teach the body how to respond to the Holy Spirit, who he is and how he works. And as a result, there really is a true negligence in the church oftentimes on this issue, which then causes the church to rise up and go, they're not even talking about the Holy Spirit. And then what do you have? A whole denomination that starts that talks about nothing else. But which one is worse off? That's a hard question to answer. What we need is to be a body that all trembles before the word of God and says, look, some of us are neglecting, some of us are abusing. Let's allow God to bring us to the center of how he works and let him train us in accordance with his way. So the overlooked and underappreciated one, that would be another way of describing the Holy Spirit. Now listen to this. But don't attempt to fix this by drawing the spotlight here. 
See, what's funny about doing a message on the Holy Spirit is if the Holy Spirit is going to enable me to preach, he's not going to want to be talked about. He's going to want to showcase Jesus Christ. That's why a great sermon, every great sermon is going to lead to a singular end, and that is the exaltation and the glory of Jesus Christ because the Holy Spirit labors to that end in each of our understanding. So how do you deal with the Holy Spirit? It's like, Holy Spirit, I need your help to teach them about you. He's like, I don't want to talk about me. But he knows, just as we need to understand, that if you don't understand properly who he is, that's where the abuse comes. So may the Holy Spirit help me in articulating the Holy Spirit. But don't attempt to fix this by drawing the spotlight here. Oh, he's being overlooked. And so we take the spotlight boom, and stick it on the Holy Spirit. The spirit you are attempting to make a celebrity would be quenched by the very act of attempting to put him at the center stage. So we don't want to quench the spirit, but guess what quenches the spirit? Making everything about the spirit. That isn't how it works. You say, hey, whoa, whoa, I'm the servant here. I'm trying to help you see the master, see the son. Do not try and warp me into being the celebrity. My job is to show you how you are to function. The spotlight isn't supposed to be on you either. You see, he's training us how to make our lives about the Son. He is the template. So the spirit you are attempting to make a celebrity would be quenched by the very act of attempting to put him at the center stage. It is his delight to labor behind the scenes. It is his joy to serve the Godhead in the way that he does. His work is in perfect agreement with his nature. It is right for him to serve the glory of the Son and the Father in this fashion. Just because you want the spotlight on you, don't for a moment think the one known as the Holy Spirit is like you. In fact, he is altogether unlike you, which is why his work is so necessary. See, we itch for the spotlight, don't we? We want it to be about us. And when life isn't about us, what do we do? We grumble and complain. We're being overlooked. But how does the Holy Spirit handle it? The Holy Spirit receives this as his commission. It matches perfectly with his nature. He is as God is. And so as a result, he is always serving another. And so even the Godhead, the way the Godhead is set up is to serve one another. The Father has an ache for the Son. The Spirit has an ache for the Son. But the Son has an ache for the Father. That the Father would be seen and realized, revealed. How this works is just an extraordinary triumvirate. So he is altogether unlike us, which is why his work is so necessary. So the work of the old servant. To see that you adore his master and cherish every facet of his person as he does. Isn't that a fascinating thought to think of the Holy Spirit cherishing every facet of Jesus Christ? I mean, he's God. Isn't he just used to it by now? It's like, oh yeah, God's God. Yeah, same old, same old. But the Holy Spirit cherishes every facet of the Son. And the Son reveals every facet of the Father. And he beholds that beauty and that glory and he gets so excited to tell you about it. Have you seen the Son? Have you seen him? This is the Holy Spirit. This is how he works. Next, to ensure that you learn to wait upon his every word and treat his every utterance as precious as he does. So the Son speaks to us. It's called the Word of God. And the Spirit of God waits upon the Word of God. He waits like a butler waits upon the Word of God known as Jesus. And he takes whatever word Jesus has and he brings it 
to us. So the Spirit of God has a design, and that is to take from the Word of God and bring it to you. Oh, this is an amazing word, this scripture. Do you see it? And the Spirit of God takes from what is Christ's and brings it to you. You see, he receives that word. He is in alignment with that word, but you aren't. So he takes from that word and brings it to you. And finally, to make certain that your life is wholly lost in the pursuit of his glory and fame as his is. Do you see the glory and the fame of my master? Do you see Jesus? He's caught up in this reality. Are you? But the work of the Spirit is to make you get caught up in his fame and his glory. Not his own, but Christ's. The work of the old servant, to make you as he is. What is he? He's a love-driven bondservant of the father's household. He's the bondservant. You guys have heard the story of the bondservant in the Old Testament, haven't you? The one who is set free, but he returns unto his master and says, out of love, I would like to be your bondservant for life. And so the master takes him and sticks him against the, the doorpost and pierces his ear with an awl. Why would he pierce an ear? Why, why would he do that? It's because the ear is symbolic of heeding and hearing and obeying. And when your ear is pierced, you are saying, I have an ear for my master. What he says, I will do. What we say at Ellerslie is it's the predecided yes, Lord, where you have already said whatever he says goes in my life. Whatever he asks, my answer is already yes. And you can say, he hasn't even asked it yet. Well, I know, but my ear already states that my answer is yes when he does. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the pattern. He's the love-driven bondservant of the Father's household. Whatever Jesus says, he says, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I will do that, Lord, for your glory, Lord, for your honor. But he's God. You know, you could say the same thing about Jesus. What do you mean he only did what the Father was doing? What do you mean he only spoke what the Father was speaking? He's God. He can do whatever he wants, can't he? He showed the perfect dependence upon the Father the same way the Spirit shows a perfect dependence upon him. What are you supposed to show in your life? A perfect dependence upon the Spirit of God. You see, this is the pattern. And you want to give glory to the Father? Then you heed the Spirit. And when you heed the Spirit, you're giving glory to the Son. And when you heed the Son, you're giving glory to the Father. It works. So the great love story of Isaac. Okay, there's a dead giveaway. And yet you're like, what does that have to do with an old servant? Well, just wait. You see, here's what's interesting. There's a great love story. I mean, it really is an amazing story. In the book of Genesis, where Isaac, just a couple chapters before, was laid on an altar at Moriah. And Abraham raises his knife and God says, stop. That is so amazingly symbolic of the cross. And what is found in the thicket is a ram. A sacrificial lamb that is able to be given in the place of Isaac. It's a picture of Jesus. It's a picture of the cross. You see, the cross comes and then just a couple chapters later, there is a work an old servant is sent forth to retrieve a bride for the son. So I'm giving a little too much away. I'm trying to hold back as much as I can. But what we know is a great love story of Isaac. You see, there's actually a whole other theme we could look at in that story, but most of us would never see it. And it's okay. 
and it's the storyline of the old servant. And so there's another name for this story that we could give. I'm not saying we should because the old servant doesn't want it to be named this. He says, no, no, don't name it that. This is the great love story of Isaac. This is about Isaac. Don't make it about me. And that's what's so amazing about the story. The key character in this story is an old servant, and yet guess what? You never hear his name. The whole time, you'll never hear his name, and yet he's the one doing all the work. And you don't know his name, and we can get mad about that. How unjust the scriptures are to not give this man's name. We should be remembering him in history. Instead, we have no clue who he is, and most of you didn't even know there was an old servant in that story. Because that isn't the focal point of the story. What is the focal point? The father has a delight to see his son receive his bride. That's the story. Isaac must receive the reward. He must receive his bride. And this old servant catches the drift, catches the vision, lays down his life, goes on the ultimate adventure, and secures for Isaac that bride. Do you see it? It's there in Scripture. Don't feel bad for the old servant. That's the old servant's delight. If the old servant had all the attention paid to him, what would he do? Hey, hey, no, I'm just a servant. And yet, this is one noble servant. We could make the story about him, but the story isn't supposed to be about him any more than it's supposed to be about you and me. So introducing our cast, the father. So can't you see if this is like a play, the father steps out and is like background music. Abraham. Now I'm going to give Abraham a name here, just sort of a concept that we're going to build on, but he's the convinced. And that's a very interesting name for Abraham because he was convinced that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. He was so confident that there was a bride outside of the Canaanites for his son, that he knew that this errand would be received. God would honor it. He was convinced. The son, his name is Isaac, and we'll call him the dependent. He's wholly given to his father. Whatever his father asks, this son will do. You know that he's 40 years old. This would have been the 41st year of his life when his bride comes into her, his life. So he's just turned 40, and now his 41st year has begun. And if any of you linger around Ellerslie, you know the number 41 is not an accidental number. After 40 years are completed, Moses runs into a burning bush. After 40 years are completed, the first day of the 41st year, the waters of the Jordan part, and Joshua leads the Israelites across on dry land. After 40 days are completed, on the 41st day, David strolls into the valley of Elah and overhears the boasting of Goliath. The spirit is the day on the 41st. That's the spirit day. 40 days in the wilderness, fasting and praying, Jesus is tested, and he emerges on the 41st. 41, in, by the way, in the power of the spirit. So the son Isaac, dependent, what, two chapters before he's laying on the altar, he's completely given. Whatever his father asks, he will do. Now, instead of going to get a bride for himself, what does he do? He trusts his father. And his father trusts the old servant. Not fascinating. So now, oh, here's our guy, the old servant, the unknown helper. We'll call him the convincer. Uh, we were talking about as a staff the other day that historically in Christianity, the word convict was oftentimes translated convince. 
And so the convincer, which we oftentimes know is the convictor, it's like the convictor, Holy Spirit's convicting me, which is definitely true. Why is he con convicting you? Because he's convincing you of your wrong. He's a convincer. And so we're going to call the old servant the convincer. And then there's our bride. Her name's Rebecca. And we'll call her, I know this is a little mushy sort of a word, but the wood. <laughs> Genesis 24. Now Abraham was old. Well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, I made it big just so you wouldn't miss it, who ruled over all that he had. What a strange statement. You know that all that Abraham had was given to Isaac? And yet who ruled over all he had? He was a steward. It was this old servant. The old servant had access to all that Abraham and Isaac had, and yet he never possessed it as his own. He said, it's theirs. Please put your hand, this is Abraham talking, please put your hand under my thigh. I know it sounds strange. It's a symbol of covenant and promise. I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. Simple plot line. Maybe a little strange for some of you with the whole thigh thing going on. And maybe you don't understand the flow of history and what Canaan is and what he means by his own country. And I don't have a lot of time to go into that. But Abraham was called out of a country that his heritage and all his family line had always been in. And he was living as a foreigner in the land of Canaan, which ultimately has become known as Israel. But at that time, they were still foreigners. They were increasing in the land, but they were not yet received. They did not have dominion or control over that land. And so he still talks about the Canaanites as being foreign women. So here's the assignment for the old servant. Go, my dear old servant, into a land you haven't seen for many years and retrieve from my son his bride. Woo her, convince her, call her, and bring her home. Okay, now you know what this message is about. So I want you to begin to think in a deep, different layer. One of the things you're going to begin to learn in how to study the Bible is that everything in the Word of God pertains to Jesus Christ. Everything. No story is added in accidentally. This isn't just for historical purposes or some moral training. This is to reveal the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God to save, the ability of God to save, the way that God saves. It reveals doctrine, instructs us in righteousness and how we ought to live. What could this story actually teach us about how we ought to live. Well, just wait. So he's to, to woo her, convince her, call her, and bring her home. Impart to her a clear picture of my son's virtue, that she may love him, serve him, and cherish his every facet of strength as you yourself do. Train her to treat him in the same manner you treat him. Do this, my dear old servant, and my joy and my son's joy will be full. The spirit knows all the virtue of the son and the father. He loves them. He served them his entire life. He has access to all the strength, all the merit, all the ability of the Father's kingdom. And so with that power, he now has access to come unto, he has freedom, liberty to come unto us and woo us and invite us home. The Spirit of God has been entrusted with the task of bringing about the finishing touches to that great work on the cross. You see, there could just be a historical event. It, it happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus died. He rose again. Yeah, great. How does that affect you? How it affects you is what the Spirit of God is doing. He's saying, have you ever heard about this event 2,000 years ago? No. Well, what's that? You see, he's the one acquainting you with what took place. 
You see, there is an Isaac over yonder. And he's interested in you. Would you leave your family, your father, your mother, your brothers, and your sisters, would you leave it all and come with me to be his wife? I know for us men in here, that's a little strange analogy, but that's the biblical analogy. We are the bride. We are the wooed. We are the ones that are being convinced that our life here is desolate. But that life in that foreign land with Isaac, under the ruling power of Abraham, hmm, I'm interested. Why are we interested in leaving everything? Have you ever thought that? Well, why am I here at Ellerslie? How did I get here? Who conned me into this? Why are you so attracted? You see, the Spirit of God is convincing you. He's wooing you. He's teaching you something, and you're strangely interested. Taking a necessary detour in our story. All right, we got the story started. Now Eric's going to go and take a left turn here. At least it's going to seem that way. But I'm going to be filling in some gaps for us. Introducing the great convincer, the Holy Spirit. The action and the effect of the Holy Spirit. Now, these are some big Greek words that are really hard to pronounce. So it might take me a few goes. But I worked on it this week just so I could say them correctly for you. We'll see how that practice played off. Plurophoreo, and then pleuroforia. First one is a verb, and the second one is a noun. When the Spirit of God is working, let's just say it this way, or another way of saying it, the Spirit of God pleophorios in order to pleophoria. I know, you're like, this is not helping me, Eric. <laughs> well, let me introduce you to these two words, and I think you will understand. This is what the Bible says the Spirit of God is doing. And so when you begin to recognize, this is how he works. So here's our first word, pleuroforia. Pleuroforio. Boy, tough stuff. So this means it's an action. It's to bring completely to an end. Okay, so if I'm starting out a journey, and you know, someone says, you need to carry this from A to B. Well, then I'm, I start here, and I, oh, this is heavy. And then I drop it. Well, I didn't pleuroforio. You see, to pleo for rio means to carry it completely, which means the work that I begin, I bring to completion. Pleo for rio. Who does that? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, when he starts a work, finishes a work. That's what the word means, to bring completely to an end without stopping short or no miscarriage. You start something, the life has begun, it comes all the way to full term and is delivered. No miscarriage, pleo frio, but completing a long journey. Well, it also means this. There's actually three definitions of this. To fully show something without any remaining hindrance to sight. So imagine that I'm trying to describe to you the lake out back. Of course, it's covered with ice and snow, which makes it sort of hard to describe. But we've got this veil that's in the way, which is known as a curtain here at Ellerslie, but spiritually speaking, it would be a veil. What does the Spirit of God do? He pulls back the veil. You see, and he doesn't just pull it part way. He pulls it all the way. That's his job. In the end, the Holy Spirit will reveal to you the manifold grace, the manifold glory of God. And you will see him as face to face. You will see it without any blockage. Imagine I open that an inch in the middle. Light would come cascading in. And you'd say, I see it. I see the light. And what I could say is there's still a lot more light to see. 
there's still a clearer vision to see. And so the Spirit of God is constantly increasing the picture. But he brings it all the way to the end. Remember what the word, play, play, well, that is a hard word, pleirofario. What it means is to do it completely, fully, thoroughly. To fully convince someone, not half convinced, like, yeah, I get your drift. Or, yeah, I sort of see what you mean. No, 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 no. To fully convince someone. For those of you that are still in the, yeah, yeah I just don't know completely. Well, are you ready to be pleoforeoed? You see, the Spirit of God knows how to do it thoroughly. And if you're interested in dealing with God Almighty, see, he's given you everything you need to fully be convinced. To fully convince someone, to make one certain, to persuade one to a right conclusion. And Abraham, this is, I, just, I put Abraham in there, by the way, just so you knew who it was talking about. Being fully persuaded. Well, what was going on? He had some pleoforio going on. You see, he was fully convinced, and that's what the word in the Greek is absolutely convinced, wholly certain, that what he, God Almighty, had promised he was able also to perform. Do you have that same confidence? God promised. You've read scripture? He promised it. Do you have the pleo for real? Do you have that full confidence? Has the Spirit of God brought you to that point? He'll do it. God will do it. He can't lie. He will do it. Everyone in this world could mock you. They could say, it's not happening, Eric. He will do it. You see, God, the Spirit of God, labors to play role for real. Now, here's our play role for real, which is a noun. It's the end work of play role for real. It means full assurance. It's an arrival place. Are you there? Full assurance. Yeah, I got the full assurance. I know where I stand in Christ Jesus. I know my position. I do, by the way. Elders of students, do you know your position? What's your position? Some of you are like, what in the world is he talking about? <laughs> Just testing. You have to have pleroforia. You must know your position. The enemy's going to test you at every corner. He's going to say, that doesn't count. That doesn't matter. Are you sure about this? Yes, I am. You see, the Spirit of God is the one that does the convincing. Full assurance, most certain confidence, absolutely convinced, completely persuaded. So for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power. Listen to this. And in the Holy Spirit and in pleuroforia, in full assurance. When the Holy Spirit comes, the gospel didn't just come, but it came in power. It came by the Holy Spirit to bring about full certainty. You know your position. So back to the story, sort of. See, I'm headed back towards the story. I just got to do one more little tangent, but I want you to feel like I haven't forgotten the story. That's why I had that title slide, just in case you were wondering where Eric was going. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. So Adam has just been formed. Some great things have taken place. But Adam is alone. He doesn't have what the King James calls a helpmeet, which is a very awkward term for us, a helpmeet. Yeah, we're going to actually use that word? Uh, it's just strange. A helper, maybe a little more of a normal term. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helpmeet for him. And Adam gave names to all the cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helpmeet 
before him. Now, why does this matter? Well, Adam is a picture of something. And the first Adam failed. But there is one known as the last Adam. And you know what? I think we're needing a bride for him. You see, the father has an ache. And this is a foreshadow of something. That the last Adam, it's only right that he would have a bride. And so, I'm just setting the stage here for it. But I just changed out a word there, and that's helpmeet. The word in the Hebrew is ezer. It's a very attractive word, I know. But I will make him an ezer for him. So for all of you that are a bride, uh, your husband can start, start calling you his ezer. Uh, I know, that'd be quite the compliment too, by the way, once you get familiar with the word. It's just not very poetic. And so at the very last line, but for Adam there was not found an ezer for him. So why in the world am I telling you this? Ezer or Azer. It's a masculine noun. Isn't that interesting that a masculine noun would be used to describe the helpmate, the bride, the one that comes out of Adam's side? Why would they use a masculine noun? That's because it foreshadows something all throughout Scripture that is more than just a bride. It is the one that aids and abets and serves the Adam. And that one that helps him carry out his task of dominion and control and governance. Who is that one? It's not just us. The great rescue in the Potomac. By the way, I haven't gotten back to this story. I'm just wanting you guys to feel close to it as we're going along. I remember when I was growing up, my dad told me this story. I... There was, I don't know, it was a helicopter or a plane that went down into the Potomac River. And this would have been 20, 30 years ago, I guess. And I think Reagan was the president. I'm not positive, but I think in my best recollection, that was what it was. And there was a story that came out of it of this soldier. I don't know if he was special forces or whatever that was in the cold waters of the Potomac. And all these people were screaming and he kept his head the entire time. And what he kept doing is these rescue helicopters would come down is he would press them out of the water and into the rescue uh, helicopters. And one after the other, he'd lift out, and I don't know how many people he saved, but in the end, he died. He gave up his life to help the others out of the frigid, icy waters. He was built for the task. You see, as a man, when I train in masculinity, I would say that's the ultimate manly action right there. You see, a man doesn't mind if he dies in the cold waters of the Potomac as long as he dies being a man. You see... If we could be spent lifting others out of the chilly waters, even though we die in the process, it's called nobility in heaven's eyes. That's called honor. That's called heroism. And yet, when it translates into our Christian life, we always feel bad for the Holy Spirit. Like, oh, the poor guy. He's the one in the cold waters of the Potomac. Heroism. The Ezer, we'll call him the unknown soldier. Imagine if you never heard the name of that man that was lifting them out of the waters. What if you never heard the name? So the Ezer, we'll call him the unknown soldier, the one who shares the name of someone else. You know that it's actually one of the basic principles, even when you see covenantal marriage, that the wife takes on the name of the husband and loses her name. One willing to expend their own life strength, lifting someone out of the waters into the helicopter. Drowning without anyone ever having a name to associate with your noble act. Then floating to the bottom of the river and never having, never having your body found. 
forever being known as the unknown soldier. Who wants that? Hey, if I'm going to give up my life, someone needs to do a news article on me. Someone needs to at least know who I am. I can't just die in the bottom of the Potomac and no one even knows that I lifted them out. Someone may know they got lifted out. And they said, what did he look like? All I saw was his arms. That's all I saw. The true easer is one convinced that this sacrificial pattern is the highest form of employment, the noblest form of living, and the greatest expenditure of a life. See, the true easer is convinced of this. I'm built for the most important job. I'm built to give up my life that they would be saved. How did Jesus live? He lived as an easer. How does the Holy Spirit live? He lives as an easer. How are you called to live? As an easer. Introducing Ellie Ezer. We typically pronounce it Eliezer, which is why we don't see it. Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abraham and of Abram in a vision. So remember who our father is in this story. Abraham. Now we're going back to Genesis 15. So we're going back almost nine chapters in Genesis to an obscure little scene that most of us never pay much attention to. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram. By the way, that's, a, Abram was renamed to Abraham by God. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? Abraham had no natural descendants to carry on his line. And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. Oh, well, that's interesting. And Abram said, Behold to me, thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. One of the most important passages in the Bible. And yet there was something that happened in that passage that most of us never took notice of. You know that someone was mentioned that is never mentioned again? A name was given that you will never hear again. I'm not saying the name isn't used in the Hebrew uh, histories. I'm saying this man's name is never given again. You, they never refer to him with a name again. But he is the steward of the house. He was born in Abraham's house and raised in Abraham's house. And he's the steward. So what do we know about this guy named Eliezer? He was born in the house of Abraham. He was a steward of the house of Abraham. He was Meshech to the house of Abraham. In the Hebrew, Meshech means, and you can see it there, Meshech meant the son of the possession, possessor of the house, the heir to acquire, the one to inherit, the one to whom it belongs, the steward of the house. So and the final one is, and after this verse, his name is never mentioned again. How would you like to be this guy? Eliezer. Grows up in his house, takes care of all of Abraham's stuff. He's a steward of all. He is the one that is to inherit it. But God sees fit to say, no, it must be of an Adam. It must be of a natural birth. In this line, in this line of seed, which is talking about Jesus, by the way. Isaac is a picture of Jesus. It must be through that. So Eleazar must become a servant to the one who is going to, in a sense, take all that he has. And yet you never hear one gripe or one word of complaint from this man. He's willing to disappear into the pages of Scripture. 
And though he works some of the most noble deeds that you will see, he is not mentioned. Eliezer. It means God plus Ezer, a helper. You know, so what that translates into? This is what his name means. God is the helper. God is the servant. Can you guys even accept that? Can you accept the fact that with God, all his great names, the Most High, the God of battle, these are massive names. He is. And yet, God is the servant. You want to know who the helper is? You want to know who the servant is? That's God too. Who saves you? God. But who helps you along the way to be saved? God. God. God's the servant? You know, I can't have my feet washed by God. He's too big. Unless your feet are washed by God, you have no part with him. God is the servant. What a revelation! And that's what this man's name means. This man, Eleazar, who I'm going to propose, and though I can't convince you of it scripturally, is the old servant. Who else is going to be the old servant? This is the one who's always been around. And back in this day, 40 years earlier, probably 55 years earlier, I think it is about what it was, there was a steward of a house. And then 55 years later, all you know is he's the old servant. He's the one that Abraham trusted with everything, his entire estate. He had proven himself all those years. And his name just happens to be God is the helper. So fast forward to the New Testament and what is the Holy Spirit known as? He'd be known as Eliezer. And I will pray the Father, this is Jesus speaking, and he will give you another Ezer that he may abide with you forever. Isn't that fascinating? The Holy Spirit is known as the Ezer, the helper. Okay, now we are really back to our story. Some of you were concerned. The tale of the unknown soldier. Now, technically, this story should just be called the love story of Isaac. However, what we are focused on today, even though it's a very dangerous thing to focus on, is the fact that there is a character in this story that very easily could go unnoticed, but that character is significant in how the story plays out. There is a character in Christianity that without him, the story doesn't work. But the story is not about him. But he's the one scripting, writing, pulling all the story together. So to diminish the Holy Spirit is a crime. But to put him at the center of the story is an equal crime. We must allow the old servant to be the old servant. By the way, in Christianity, do you know who you work for? In a sense, there's a great estate that you've been brought into. And that estate is the Lord Jesus Christ's estate. All things have been given to him. All things are under his feet. So, but he is under the Father. And the Father has bequeathed to him his entire estate. But then who keeps the estate? The old servant. And so when you come in, you work for the old servant. He manages the house and he teaches you how to live in this house. He teaches you how to bring honor to the master of this house. And though you are a child of the very master of that house, you learn how to live in that house by studying the old servant and by following his ways. He teaches you. He says, no, this is when we are silent so that he can be seen. No, no, you don't stand up in the midst of that room when the master is in it. You always bend. 
and you take a low posture because your master must be the one seen. If you ever obscure the view of your master, you are not doing him a service. You are hindering the real purpose that you have in this house. This is his house for his glory. If you know your position in this house, you'll be the happiest person on earth because you were built, you were designed, you were crafted by God to be a servant, just like me, the old servant. The tale of the unknown soldier. So this is going to be a little crash course in Genesis 24. So I'm just going to read it. I have trimmed it a bit, and I feel bad doing that, but if I didn't, it would be double the length. I, how do you cut out anything in a story? But I'm trying to just get to the point and show you. I want you to watch for a couple things here. First off, how this servant is treated in the text of Scripture. It almost seems awkward when you begin to see it that he is purposely left out. Like his name is purposely not said. Why? What's wrong with just saying Eliezer? Why, why wouldn't you say it? Because the point is, it is not about him. It is about this love story. It is about Isaac. Isaac is the entire focal point of the old servant. And Abraham was old and well stricken in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham, Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house that ruled over all that he had, Thou shalt go unto my country and to my kindred and take a wife unto my son Isaac. And the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning that matter. And the servant took ten camels of the camels of his master and departed. Listen to this line. For all the goods of his master were in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, unto the city of Nahor. And he made his camels to kneel down without the city, or outside the city, by a well of water. At the time of the evening even the time that women go out to draw water. Ah, I like how this guy functions. He's a thinker. So he has his, cat, or his, his camels all uh, stop and sort of hang out by the water well. And because this is when the women are going to come out and draw water. So we've got uh, the great scene set up here. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, I pray thee send me good speed this day and show kindness unto my master Abraham. Behold, I stand here. Isn't that interesting that he doesn't say, show kindness unto me. He says, show kindness unto my master Abraham. His entire focus is for something higher than himself. His entire attitude is that someone else would be blessed. Behold, I stand here by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city come out to draw water. And let it come to pass that the damsel, that means young girl, to whom I shall say, let down thy pitcher, I pray thee that I may drink. And she shall say, Drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. Let the same be she that thou hast appointed for the, thy servant Isaac. And thereby shall I know that thou hast showed kindness unto my master. So it's a simple task that he gives. And that is when he asks for water, that she will not just give him water, but then water his camels. And that will be the signal to him that this is the wife. Of course, the story just moves so quick from there that it's almost shocking because the very first girl that comes does exactly that. And it came to pass before he had done speaking that behold, Rebekah came out who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, with her pitcher upon her shoulder. And the damsel was very fair to look upon, a virgin, neither had any man known her. And she went down to the well and filled her pitcher and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, let me, I pray thee, drink a little water of thy pitcher. Can't you just see him? He's like, uh, hey, uh, let me have a little of the water of your pitcher. You know, wink, wink. You know what to do now, don't you? 
And she said, drink, my Lord. And she hasted and let down her pitcher upon her hand and gave him drink. And when she had done giving him drink, she said, listen to this line. This is great. This is actually the confirmation. I will draw water for thy camels also until they have done drinking. And she hasted and emptied her pitcher into the trough and ran again into the well to draw water and drew for all his camels. And the man wondering at her held his peace. He's known as the man. And the man wondering at her held his peace to wit whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. And it came to pass, as the camels had done drinking, that the man took a gold earring of half shekel of weight and two bracelets for her hands of ten shekels weight of gold. So this is the way I picture it. He draws it out of his little satchel, and he's like, I think this is it. This is the first girl he's met in the whole journey. But he gets in position because he's going to adorn her. He's going to adorn her if she is the one. He is going to begin to clothe her with that righteousness, with that wealth and that great strength of his master. And so he's, he's waiting for the moment. And he said, whose daughter art thou? Tell me, I pray thee, is there room in thy father's house for us to lodge in? And she said unto him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, which she bare unto Nahor. She said, moreover unto him, we have both straw and provender enough and room to lodge in. And listen to how, to how the old servant responds. And the man bowed down his head and worshiped the Lord. The first thing he thinks of is something higher. You have done it. You did it. You are worthy to be praised. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who hath not left destitute my master of his mercy and his truth. I being in the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. And the man came into the house, and he ungirded his camels and gave straw and provender for the camels and water to wash his feet and the men's feet that were with him. And there was set meat before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I've told mine errand. So here's the man. He is brought in. He's just amazed at how God has brought him however many days journey. I think it was like 300 miles randomly to a well. And he sets down. And the first woman that comes up to him, even when he's still praying, is Rebecca, who just happens to be in the lineage of his master Abraham and Isaac's, I mean, it's Abraham's brother's family, who, by the way, this is Laban's sister. Rebecca is Laban's sister. If you remember Laban and all the great stories that come with Jacob uh, and Laban with Rachel and Leah, that's, this is the family. So, will you please eat, old servant? And he says, I will not eat until I've told mine errand. This man doesn't care about his own stomach. He is so interested in completing this task. He's going to bring it to completion. He must know. He must press this forward. And he said, speak on. And he said, I am Abraham's servant. That's what he called himself. He's known as Abraham's servant. Jehovah's servant. And the Lord hath blessed my master greatly, and he has become great. Who is he talking about? He's talking about his master's greatness. And he hath given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and men servants and maidservants and camels and donkeys. What's he doing? He's doing the convincing work. He's saying, just in case you're wondering, the one I represent is Abel. The one I represent is the wealthiest of all. And Sarah, my master's wife, bare a son to my master when she was old, and unto him hath he given all that he hath. Doesn't that sound a little like Jesus? 
And my master made me swear, saying, Thou shalt not take a wife to my son of the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but thou shalt go unto my father's house and to my kindred and take a wife unto my son. And now if ye will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing proceeds from the Lord. We cannot speak unto thee bad or good. Behold, listen to this, Rebekah is before thee, take her. And go, and let her be thy master's son's wife, as the Lord has spoken. And it came to pass that when Abraham's servants heard these words, listen to what he did. He worshipped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. And the servant brought forth jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment and gave them to Rebekah. He gave also to her brother and to her mother precious things, and they did eat and drink. And the men that were with them and tarried all night, and they rose up in the morning. So it's one night, rise up in the morning, all right. Saddle the, saddle the, what are they, camels? Let's get going. Send me away unto my master. And her brother and her mother said, let the damsel abide with us a few days, at least ten. After that she shall go. And what does the old servant say? And he said unto them, by the way, this is the same thing he'll say to you. When you say, couldn't I linger a little longer in my old life? Couldn't I stay here just a little longer? And he says, Hinder me not, seeing the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. Let me take Rebekah home. Let me take her where she rightfully belongs, at the side of Isaac. And they said, We will call the damsel and inquire at her mouth. And they called Rebekah and said unto her, Wilt thou go with this man? What has this been? I don't know, 12 hours? Wilt thou go with this man? That's all we know him. It doesn't give him a name. This man. And she said, I will go. What a line. That is a great refrigerator quote. And she said, I will go. What a statement. When the Spirit of God beckons you, what's your response? As you're brought in, will you go with this Spirit? We don't know much about him. He's just known as the Holy Spirit. But supposedly he's taking you to Jesus Christ whose father is Jehovah. Will you go? I will go. And they sent away Rebekah and their sister and her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And Rebekah arose and her damsels and they rode upon the camels and followed the man. So this is what I picture the entire time. What is Isaac like? And the man or the old servant is constantly singing the praises of Isaac. To the point where Rebecca, even when she is arriving, is so in love with this man. So interested, so fascinated to know him in a deeper way. Because the old servant is instructing her in his merits, in his virtue, in his valor, in every one of his qualities. He doesn't talk about himself. We don't even know his name. However, when she arrives, we know she is of a disposition to want Isaac. And Isaac came from the way of the well, Lahoiroi, for, for he dwelt in the south country. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field at the evening. And he lifted up his eyes. I love this scene. And he lifted up his eyes and saw. And behold, the camels were coming. I love this scene. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she lighted off the camel. This is a love story. Sorry, guys. Some of you are a little uncomfortable. The girl's like, oh. <laughs> It's good. It's really good. For she said unto the servant, what, what, what man 
is that that walketh in the field to meet us? Oh, can't you just see what's going on here? This is great. And the servant had said, "Um, it is my master. Therefore, she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all things that he had done. And Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and took Rebekah. And she became his wife. And he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. What a story. That is a love story. The whole focus of the story is Isaac's bride. That's the entire reason it's there. But there is an underlying story that without it, you do not have Isaac receiving his bride. Isaac could have. The story could have been completely different. Isaac could have just gone out and found a bride. You know how many times in Scripture that happens? And they were married. You don't know anything about the story, but in this one, God slows down the tape. He says, watch, we're going in slow motion. All right, focus. Do you see that? Well, why why is this important? Focus. This is useful to you. And we're like, it's a love story. I know. Did you see anything else in there? No, not really. Any other characters? No. Who was in it? Abraham, Isaac, Rebecca. Did you not see anyone else? Not really. All right. There is someone else. But I don't want you just to focus on the someone else. But I want you to know that what they did is what you are called to do. What they did was serve the Father and the Son. What they did is the ultimate job description. It's what you are here on earth to do. And that is not to serve your own ends, but to serve theirs. And when you do that, you are the happiest servant. You know that it never mentions this servant again? Once she lights off that camel, once she says, it is my master, you never see him again. It's not like she turns back and says, thank you. (laughs) She sees Isaac, and that's what she's come for. Not to get married to the old servant, but to get married to Isaac. It's called the friend of the bridegroom. John the Baptist said it well. He was a friend of the bridegroom. And when Jesus came, he must decrease, that Christ would increase. It is the work of the one who comes before. And the Spirit of God is the one that comes before Isaac. He's the one that beckons you home. He's the one wooing you. He's the one convincing you. He's the one taking you. And yet, all he's doing is drawing from all that the Son has given to him. He has all the inheritance of the house to bring to you. But all that inheritance is Christ's. And he wouldn't be able to even bring it to you without the cross. Jesus was the easer unto the Father. And the Spirit is the easer unto Jesus. And we are the easer unto the Spirit, unto Jesus, and unto the Father. That is our role. Don't try and be something you're not. However, being a servant in the kingdom of heaven is royalty. The children have a high position, and that is we are called easers. We take the lowest position, and in doing so, we have the highest. Becoming servants, restrained under the glory, success, and benefit of another. The Jesus model, for the glory of the Father, saying only what the Father says and doing only what the Father is doing. Jesus, the greatest picture of excellence and virtue that has ever walked on this earth. He did only what the Father led him to do. He only spoke what the Father was speaking. He only did what the Father was doing. He was a bondservant unto his Father. Well, the spirit model. 
for the glory of Jesus Christ, saying only what Jesus, the word of God, is saying. You know what? The Holy Spirit will never violate the word of God, will never transgress the word of God, will never say anything, reveal anything different than the word of God. You know, one of the major issues in some of the modern use of the Holy Spirit is that we have all these additional words that are coming out that contradict the word of truth. Well, that ought not to be. The Holy Spirit is the one that wrote the text of Scripture carrying along men. I think the Holy Spirit knows what's in there. And the Holy Spirit only takes from that which is Christ's. He only takes, get this, from the Word of God. So if he's going to speak to you, he's going to speak in perfect agreement with his nature. He's going to speak in perfect agreement with the revealed Word of God. And that's how you test the Spirit. How will you know that it's the Holy Spirit? It's because it's in perfect agreement with the Son, who's in perfect agreement with the Father. How did we test Jesus? Well, this semester we'll talk about it. It's called the canon test. Jesus was measured and tested. How did we test him? Against the Word. The, Father, the revelation of the Father, of the Son. It's called the Word of God. And we see the Son in it. How do we test the Spirit? Well, he's in perfect alignment with that Word. So the bride, well, what are we here for? We're here for the same purpose of the Spirit, for the glory of Jesus Christ, wholly given to the old servant. Whatever the old servant says, we'll serve him because he's in perfect agreement with the Son. The Son has sent the Holy Spirit to us so that we could be in agreement with his kingdom. He says, for you to behave rightly in my house, you need the old servant. So here's my old servant, and my old servant is going to help you live as you ought to live. And so, we are for the glory of Jesus Christ, wholly given to the old servant, saying only what the Spirit is saying and doing only what the Spirit is doing. And in doing so, we will be brought to Jesus. When Rebecca heeded the old servant, where did she go? She went to Isaac. You see, the old servant leads you to Isaac. What if Rebecca halfway along was like, you know what, I don't like where this old servant is going. 300 miles? You've got to be kidding me. And so she took her camel and went a different direction. Do you think she's going to end up at Isaac? No. Uh, she could say, the old servant told me to go here. It wasn't the old servant that told her to go there. Don't use the name of the old servant to say why you ended up over there in Japan. Okay? That isn't where the old servant was leading you. He was leading you to the land of Canaan, to the land flown with milk and honey, where Isaac dwells, who is the son of Father Abraham. And all has been entrusted to Isaac. All is under his feet. And you are his chosen, hand-selected bride. But there's one that can lead you there. And he's the old servant. You need to trust him. He's in perfect agreement with the father and the son. And in doing so, we will be brought to Jesus. And in seeing Jesus in all his glory, we will be seeing the glory of the father and truly know him. So in Matthew 18, this is more of a summation, it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The three, all combined. But what are we to do? We're supposed to go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And so the Father and the Son say, Stick your hand under our thigh. I need you to go. And I need you to return with my bride. Go. And make disciples. All the easers are being called in. So are you an easer? We're like, yes. And we stick our hand under his thigh and he sends us. As servants submitted to the old servant. Committed to the glory of Isaac and the father, Abraham. Or in our case, Jesus and father God. 
Go therefore and make disciples. So here's a way of saying it. Go therefore and... How, why did I have to stick this word back in? I was doing really good having been beyond it. But go therefore and play re foreo. If, if you've noticed some subtle differences in my pronunciation throughout the time, just know that's a hard word to say. So what does this word mean? Now, I want you to apply this not just to the Holy Spirit, but to the Holy Spirit working through you to carry out the Great Commission, to bring completely to an end without stopping short but completing a long journey. We've got work to do. How are we going to do it? I think we need the old servant. To fully show something without any, without any remaining hindrance to sight. The glory of God must be revealed to this earth. But it's not yet completely seen. Keep going. Play re... What was our word again? Let me get it. Play ro foreo. It's a command. Do it. To fully convince someone. To make one certain. To persuade one to a right conclusion. Go. Go into all the world and do it. Do the work of the old servant to bring others unto Isaac. Play Rolfareo with an exclamation mark. So here's the command. Heed the old servant and do what he does. Speak what he speaks and work exactly as he works. For the son's bride must hear of his virtue, of his excellence, and of his ability to save. Go! Go and play Rolfareo! Do as the old servant does and be single-minded in bringing everyone to meet you at the watering hole to Jesus Christ. Everyone you meet at the watering hole to Jesus Christ. So whoever you meet at the watering hole, hey, you, you're called. Take out the bracelet, stick it on their arm. You're called. Do you want to come unto Jesus? Do you want to come? He's invited you. Come, get on the camel with me. Let's go, I'll take you there. You see, we are not the son. And we're not the Spirit, but we do the work of the Spirit. We do what He is wanting to do. The Spirit needs a very crucial element in this earth. It's called a body. We are that body. And the Spirit dwells in us to carry out the work of the old servant on this earth. And God says, go. Go and make disciples. Go. Go to that watering hole. You'll find her there. Bring my bride to me. John 14, this is just about the helper. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The old servant never departs. The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. How are you going to learn about the Son? How are you going to understand Scripture? How are you going to pull this life off? You need some help. You need an easer sent from heaven to assist you. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. What's he going to remind us of? What, the, what Jesus said. He takes from the words of Christ. I have yet many things to say unto you, says Jesus, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Who is the truth? Jesus. He will guide you into all of Jesus. For he shall, speak, he shall not speak of himself. He doesn't have his own words. He doesn't come up with his own thoughts and novel notions. That shall he speak. But whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. He shall glorify who? Himself? No. The Son. 
He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. He takes from what is Jesus's and brings it to us. All things that the Father hath are mine. Doesn't this sound like Isaac talking? All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he, speaking of the helper, speaking of the Holy Spirit, shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. Father, we are unworthy to be brought into your house. We have done nothing of our own merit to deserve such a privileged position. But you have done the work. Your cross and your shed blood has made a way. And your spirit is convincing us to trust you, to trust you as that only way. And Lord, we yield to the old servant's beckoning and we say, yes, I will come. I will come unto the Son and unto the Father. By the shed blood of Jesus, I come. By faith in the work of Jesus Christ, I come. The door is open. The way has been made. And the Spirit of God has a camel to stick me on, to carry me unto Isaac. I am his beloved, and he is mine. And his banner over me is love. How shocking a revelation that is. But we stand convinced that it is us that have been chosen. It is us that have been invited. Thank you, old servant, for bringing us to Jesus. And thank you, Jesus, for bringing us to the Father. And thank you, Father, for sending us Jesus and for giving us and bequeathing to us the old servant. What would we do without you? We praise you, we worship you, and we love you. And spirits, to honor you, we turn and we look at Jesus. And we say, for the glory of our King and our King alone, we sing. It's in the precious name of our great King Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.